Scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been in 1 Thessalonians, if you're joining us this morning, since August, and we're uh, moving now into the final chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the sermon text. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. It's God's word. And this passage ends the same way chapter 4 ended where we were last Sunday. Last night we were in chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. This passage is in the same breath. We're talking about the return of Christ. And the reason we have confidence in the return of Christ is because of the resurrection of Christ. These two doctrines dovetail. And so when we get future things previewed to us in scripture it's not to satisfy our curiosity it's not to stoke our speculations and let our imagination run wild with the details it is to verse 11 encourage one another and build one another up just as verse 18 in chapter 4 said Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So encouragement, don't miss that because that's the point of being shown the future for those in Christ. That we mutually encourage one another by way of resurrection. That was in chapter four last week. Jesus' own resurrection and ours to come. And also return, that his return is as sure as his resurrection. So this passage here in chapter five, looking out at the return of Jesus what that's going to be like, not that we're given times and seasons, as he says in verse 1, not that we're given a lot of details, we're more or less given an event. And there will be things happening around it, swirling around it, happening within it. But we're looking out at the return of Jesus, and last week we saw that resurrection informs return. We don't believe in the return because it's a big hope so, and well, that'd be a fitting conclusion, and that's a nice end of the Jesus story. We believe in return because we believe in resurrection. Just as we affirm the resurrection of Jesus, we affirm the return of Jesus. I tried to establish last week at the end of chapter 4, these are both core doctrines. You don't believe in resurrection and deny return. You don't believe in return and deny resurrection. They come together, and this is one of these passages where it does. Now, with that in mind, a little bit of backdrop from last week, looking at chapter 5 here. Notice this phrase in verse 2, the day of the Lord. See it there in verse 2? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
That is, it will come and surprise the world. But he says in verse 4, it's not going to surprise the church because the church is looking for the day of the Lord. Well, what is the day of the Lord? This phrase doesn't originate with Paul. It originates in the prophets, Old Testament. If you go back and look at the Old Testament prophets and do a, a thorough search for this term, you get about 75 references in the Old Testament to this day of the Lord. That's what the prophets of old referred to it as. And as they saw it, it would be a time of unprecedented trouble on the earth. The word destruction is used in verse 3. And that's the kind of language that you get in day of the Lord. It's apocalyptic, destruction, terminus point, end of the world kinds of things. Now it's called a day, although as it's described both in the Old Testament and the New it's probably longer than a day in duration. It's probably not just a 24-hour period. It may be as long as seven years. And this depends on how you sequence your eschatology. And if eschatology is a, is a new word to you, it just means the doctrine of the end times, the last things. Uh, the Bible does talk about an end time. It does talk about the return of Jesus as the culmination of our redemptive hope. The anticipation of justice, actually. Justice is finally served all over the world when the Lord returns. That's what's involved in his judgment is his justice making. Now some do go when we're, we're talking about future things and so let's just say a couple things about that. One of the reasons eschatology is kind of a neglected doctrine today, it, 40 years ago, everybody was talking about eschatology. The 70s and the 80s, all the popular books were about uh, end times, future events. And, uh, and yet today, it, it's not so interesting to people as it's just kind of thought, well, this is where all the weird stuff hangs out in Christianity. You know, it hangs out in eschatology. Uh, and so it becomes a neglected doctrine, particularly if you're under... 35 in here, you haven't had a lot of eschatology teaching. If you're 65 and older, you probably cut your teeth on this in your Christian faith. This, a lot of what you were taught was, was about the prophecies of, of Scripture. The Bible does talk about this. And while some do go in overly imaginative directions, yes, that happens. Their understandings of the end times, they lose the forest for trying to be detailed with every tree, you know. Um, but with as much talk as there is of this in the Old and New Testaments, we do take the day of the Lord seriously as evangelical Christians. We believe this is coming. Jesus is coming back. And at that point, however you sequence it out, and there's different sequencing arrangements that people have as they do the best they know to do with the Scripture. However you sequence that out, Jesus is coming and, and, and his return begins the last line of dominoes falling, if you want to think about it that way. Or you can think about it like uh, an hourglass, you know, the sands of time. That at the day of the Lord, the hourglass is turned over for the last time. And it's not like God's patience ends or the grace and mercy of God is, is cut off. It's just God brings everything to the appointed conclusion that he decreed everything would be brought to, that the world would not go on infinitely as we experience it, meaning the reign and rule of sin, that that reign and rule will be ultimately defeated. It's been mortally wounded at the cross, and it's ultimately defeated at the return. I don't get real beat up about how you sequence things and understand this and that. Is there going to be a rapture or not? Uh, those things Christians of goodwill can disagree about. 
the one thing we have to affirm and the one thing that I try to focus on in my teaching is the return itself. And so the day of the Lord, which has a lot of detail to it, as you would imagine, with 75 Old Testament references to it, the day of the Lord here is coming. And this passage assumes that Christians already take this seriously. So he hasn't been trying to convince the Thessalonians nor us downstream from them in time. You got to believe this. The way he writes about it in chapters four and five is you're already anticipating this. And part of every generation's gospel witness to the world, to our neighbors, is to warn them. There's a lot of good news. Gospel means good news. But there's a, a side to the good news that comes with a warning label uh, that essentially says the day of the Lord will come. Uh, we need our neighbors to understand. We may not lead with this uh, unless we're holding a sandwich board on a street corner, you know. Uh, repent, the end is near. But we don't deny that. Um, the day of the Lord will come. God will judge the earth with finality. Now, here's the way we have to understand that and talk about it with our neighbors. We cannot not, here's a double negative, but you'll get it. We cannot not escape God's judgment. But you can take your judgment at the cross, on the other side of which is resurrection and glorification, resurrected body, or you can take your judgment at the return of Jesus, on the other side of which is condemnation and hell. But we cannot not take our judgment. Now, our neighbors, and even a lot of people in the church, you know, when we were doing our responsive reading from 2 Thessalonians, I'm sure some of you thought, oh, that's a little harsh. You know, I hope a visitor doesn't get the wrong idea, you know, about us. And we get tested sometimes when we get to these passages about, do we really hold all scripture to be God-breathed? Do we really? And, and when we talk about judgment and hell, your neighbor says, really? You really believe that? I mean, I thought we were sharing flowers here in the property line. And, and uh, you know, you wash my car sometimes and I give you stuff. And you really believe judgment and hell and all that stuff? How could you? Well, I, I don't believe. I've taught on this. 2015, I did a little series on hell and uh, genocide in the scripture and uh, some of those places where our neighbors will open up to the Bible and say, explain this, you know, because it, it, it runs against all modern sensibilities about the way things ought to be. I don't believe in, in a medieval caricature of hell as God torturing unbelievers with glee, you know. But to take the Bible seriously at face value, which we do as evangelical Christians, the Bible is our highest authority. This means how could I not acknowledge God's right to judge humanity after centuries of our squandering his mercy? I mean, hell is essentially God saying, you didn't want me in life. I'm not going to make you take me in death. You've wanted separation from me your entire existence. That's on the other side of the day of the Lord, the, the judgment side of that. We're on the return side, the, 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 the rescue side of this event. But whenever that day runs its course, uh, these are realities. And since I'm on this, just another kind of a housekeeping matter among evangelicals, please be suspect of teachers who read into the text of Scripture things like COVID or election outcomes in order to say they know we're in the end times, you know. Some of them sell best-selling books. Uh, they take things like, I've been reading through Ezekiel uh, because my Bible reading has had me in that, the calendar that I follow. And, and 
Ezekiel 39, there are references to widespread burial and cleansing of the land. And I know some brother, some sister somewhere is saying, there's COVID-19 in the Bible, you know. It's in Ezekiel 39. Be suspect of that, please. Uh, That stuff tends to happen with eschatology more than any other doctrine. Those who read into Scripture current events in order to read out of Scripture what their imagination is planning there or what they want to be true. And really, the way we need to see that is it's a, it's a form of itching ears. I don't know if you know that imagery from the New Testament, but when Paul writes Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, he warns about people not putting up with sound doctrine. He says what they'll do instead is they'll get, in the, in the last days, he said, uh, they'll get uh, around them teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And he calls that itching ears. That's his imagery for designer doctrine. And seeing things in the Bible no one else sees. If you're reading somebody who has seen things no one else sees, ding, 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 that's a clue. They're not a good teacher. They're simply reading in what they want to be there. It's called eisegesis instead of exegeting the passage. The Bible is not a book of secrets that you need somebody to unlock for you. But in every generation, we get teachers who arise and treat the Bible as just that. It's a book of secrets, and they know how to pick the locks, and they know how to break the codes, and it's a bunch of nonsense. But it it infatuates the people of God, and and people get into this. The teaching here in chapter 5 is not, you're not in darkness because you watch the news. It's not, you're not in darkness because you know how to put two and two together and see what's happening in the world and it's got to be the end. Things are just too crazy. No. Things have always been crazy. (laughs) They've been crazy in the 1300s and in the 600s. There were crazy times. Things have always been crazy. The world has always been fallen. It does accelerate toward the end. Craziness becomes more normalized. We can see that from the New Testament. However, the teaching here is you're not in the dark that the return of Jesus will surprise you or the thought of it unsettle you because Jesus has already brought us into light. What does that mean to be in light? It means you know God is for you. You know God is for you because of what Jesus has accomplished, his resurrection, the punctuation mark on it. The same God who said, let there be light, And the scripture says, and there was, spoke light and life to us in Jesus. We're new creations in Christ. And last week we emphasized resurrection and return in chapter 4. I gave you two angles. We talked about the surety of resurrection and the suddenness of return or the swiftness of return. Let me give you in chapter 5 now two more angles that emerge from this passage in my looking at it. And these two angles are no surprise and no shame. That's the two angles we'll take these 11 verses from. No surprise, no shame. The no surprise is due to our security in Christ. The no shame is due to our sobriety in Christ. Okay? That's our two angles today. The no shame of sobriety in Christ, the no surprise due to security in Christ. When we take these 11 verses together, we see that we have a security in life that others don't have. 
And by others, I mean those outside of Christ. Though keep in mind, God is bringing people from the outside, inside every day. And one reason, we don't have, you know, umpteen reasons, but one reason we know God is doing that is so he can maximize his generosity with grace. He's not a reluctant savior. He's a savior. He's a saving God. Judgment is presented in uh, the book of Isaiah as his strange work, his alien work. It's part of his character. It's, it, it proceeds from his righteous holiness. But what he wants to do is redeem. And so today we're going to take these uh, angles on this passage. No surprise due to our security in Christ. The coming of the Lord is no surprise due to the way he secured us. And the no shame part of it due to our sobriety in Christ. We have a security others outside of Christ do not, a security anchored in his resurrection. So we're not surprised by his return as others will be. And it's no surprise due to how he secures us. There's also no shame when we are responding to him soberly. And let's take that part of it first. Let's take the sobriety part first because this passage makes a lot of that. Let's focus now on no shame because we're making a sober response to God. Now he's playing off an imagery. Don't take this woodenly, you know, like note to self, next time, you know, don't take two cocktails, just one, just one, you know. It's a, we're not talking about drunkenness uh, from alcohol. We're talking about an approach to the way we live our lives. And he's playing off drunkenness and sobriety Verses 5 through 8. Let's look at verses 5 through 8 again and we'll come back to the security point. The sobriety point. Verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. And just a point of grammar. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that the, the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are asleep. That's a word from which we get the word cemetery. It means dead. It's a euphemism for death, sleep. Here, this word for sleep in verses uh, 6 and 7 here means carelessness, means haphazardness. It means living for oneself in a reckless way. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, verse 7, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. There it is again, verse 8. Having put on... Now, see if you recognize this, this imagery. The breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You go, I, I do recognize that. It sounds familiar. Where is that elsewhere in Scripture? You think of Ephesians 6, which is also from Paul. He writes about the armor of God. He develops it beyond just the uh, breastplate and the helmet, as he has here in verse 8. But did you know the imagery doesn't actually come from Paul? Paul didn't come up with the, with the armor of, of God. It actually comes from Isaiah. Let me read you where. You can just listen to this. Isaiah 59. This is a passage in which Isaiah is telling the people of God, Israel, Judah, in this case, where we are now in history, turning 800 years before the time of Christ when I turned Isaiah. And he's saying to the people of God in that time, 800 years before Jesus, where's the justice? Why are the people of God not doing justly? And here's what he says. Truth is lacking. This is the end of, of Isaiah 59. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's how bad things are. To give up evil is to be persecuted. 
And he says then, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, God himself put on, righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. There's 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. There's Ephesians 6. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. He's talking about something comprehensive now beyond just Israel and Judah. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like the rushing stream which the, uh, the wind which the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Now Isaiah is seeing something that in his case was very far off. It's still out 2,000 years after Christ but we're awaiting on it. You heard 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 there in Isaiah 59. This reference in verse 8 in our passage, the breastplate of faith and love, the, the helmet that is the hope of salvation. What's the point of this imagery? He's exhorting us to put on these items, which has this Old Testament anchor, which has this Old Testament history. And he's exhorting this as an extension of our identity and our purpose. That is, uh, our identity is located in what God has done for us in Jesus, so is our purpose. But the armor here in verse 8 has to do with where we put our hope, how we endure troubles, the evil that we're subject to here and now. And the really, the reason I read to you Isaiah 59 is did you notice, I tried to help you notice, Jesus himself puts on the breastplate and the helmet. And that is interesting because when you put on the breastplate of faith and love, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why do you do that? You do that all the way back to Isaiah 59, all the way to 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, same imagery. Why do you do that? Why do we do that? Why does Jesus himself do that? These items identify you as one who is eager to see the justice of God. Not just the judgment God's going to come and boom, it's all judged, you know. But rolled up in judgment, what unfurls when the judgment is justice doing. And so all things are put right in the doing of justice. That's why we want to see it. We don't want to see God just come and smack the world around. That's not the point. That's not the point of wrath. Wrath is not raging. It says in verse uh, 9, we've been not destined for wrath. Wrath is reserved for those who, who hurt what God loves. And so uh, the whole thrust of Isaiah 59 is that no one does justly, even among God's people. And so if God wants justice to be done, he has to come do it himself. And Jesus comes and brings it at his first coming, but it, it takes him to a cross. At his second coming, the cross is, is always in view, but uh, the second coming is making good on his claim to be the Lord of all. These terms, these items in verse 8 identify you as one who is eager to see the justice of God, that we want to see that come if we put these things on. We're living in light of this. We want this. 
And Jesus wants to bring it. And so we want to see him return and he wants that also. Again, the whole thrust of Isaiah, no one does justly, even among God's people. And so what is God going to do about it? He's going to send himself in to do it. He did once already the cross, he'll do it again. The clouds, the return. Now, why aren't we doing it? Here's where the drunkenness comes in. We don't do it because it's like we're drunk on so many other things. From a biblical vantage point, drunkenness is the ultimate expression of self-absorption. Drunkenness comes from thinking chiefly and only of myself. Someone might be thinking, because we live in the 21st century and, you know, we we say, well, yeah, but we know some things about, you know, alcoholism, it's a disease, and and we have a much more clinical approach to that now, and, uh, you know, so how do we, how does this, because we look at it as a disease, it's kind of a sense where people can't necessarily help it, you know, and and it's just, it's in their genetic makeup and disposition. I I was um, out in Utah three years ago, my son, oldest son, was in rehab there for alcohol and drug addiction. And Lynn and I were out there for the parent weekend, and we didn't know who we were going to get to, we didn't know what the parent weekend was going to be. We knew we were going to get to see him and sit with his, his therapist, but it turns out Dr. Kevin McCauley, who's one of the most foremost experts in addiction, was there to lecture the parents. It was a real treat to get to hear him. He's got DVDs and books, and uh, McCauley is himself in recovery. He's a, he's a, a doctor who practices in, in Honolulu, Hawaii, tough, tough gig there. And he flies in uh, to uh, the continental states to speak at rehabs. And one of them was the one in Utah. And, and part of Kevin's story is uh, he was a naval flight surgeon who abused the surgical drugs and got court-martialed and spent time in prison, naval prison. It's part of his story. But he's been sober for 20, 30 years now. And he spent a few hours with us parents helping us understand the dynamics of addiction. And it was very helpful for me because... Kevin has a both-and approach. That's what makes him so, so good in this particular area. It's, he's one of the best presenters I've ever heard in my life. He's not a believer that I could tell. But Kevin said, uh, addiction is a disorder of volition. A disorder of volition. And what I appreciate in the both-and about that perspective is by disorder, he means the disease component. That there is a disease component. Absolutely there is. I don't deny that at all for a moment. But it's not the whole thing. It's not the explanation for it all, just disease component. There is also a volitional component, and volition is about our actions and our choices and our preoccupations with ourselves. The teaching of Paul here, when he exhorts the church, when he exhorts us to live soberly in the world, it's an exhortation to live in such a way that you don't have shame. Now, when I was little, growing up in the church world that I was in when I was uh, a little guy, we would have teachers tell us things like, Jesus is going to return. You don't want him watch, you don't want to be watching an R-rated movie when he comes back, do you? You You don't want to be out, you know, somewhere doing something you're not supposed to do. And we kind of chuckle about that and it's like, you know, uh, but we do know what the point was. You don't want to be doing things that, that, that lend to your shame, however you, you know, conceptualize that what you would feel shame for. And um, the exhortation is to not live selfishly when he says to live sober. He's saying there's a well-orderedness to to our life if we're sober. 
we're being exhorted due, due to what we know and anticipate of Jesus, don't get co-opted, don't get dominated by, don't get characterized by anything other than everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. And he puts this in terms of sober. See the word again, verse 6. Let's keep awake and be sober. Verse 8, let us be sober. What does this communicate? Applied self-control. What is self-control? Self-control is a form of dying to myself. It's a form of dying to myself. Verse 7, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. It's the disorder is the point. It gets turned around. And so by contrast, the emphasis here in being exhorted to sobriety is to live our lives ordered by the love and authority of Jesus. That's what he means by sobriety. To live sober is to live free of shame and the debilitating effects of shame. And so we're talking here about no shame sobriety. The teaching Paul is giving us here from Jesus recognizes that we Christians could be as into ourselves as anybody else around us. And if we get that way, we look drunk off our tails. Okay? And the world can see it. The world can tell when we're being hypocritical. The world can tell when our creed and conduct don't align. The teaching Paul is giving us here from Jesus recognizes that we Christians could be as into ourselves as anyone around us. And if we are into ourselves and live selfishly, that's to our shame. Christ absorption is to be for us more compelling than self-absorption. We have to fight self-absorption. We're still drawn to our sin. We're still drawn to our darkness. Just like those in recovery can still be drawn to their disorder and apply to it their volition, their actions and their choices in that direction. They have to learn to apply themselves to recovery, the mechanics of recovery. And to living not just in sober community, but living submitted to sober community. Because that won't allow them to become so self-absorbed again. The church can actually learn a lot to our benefit from the recovery community, by the way. Uh, one of the main things we can learn from this is to not try and go at faithfulness alone. The recovery community can help amplify for us how much one another-ness we get. Like in verse 11, encourage one another. Build one another up. If we're going to live faithfully and truthfully, if we're going to live sober, we have to encourage one another to be Christ-centered. That means the resurrection is everything. To be gospel-centered. That means the return is what we're looking forward to. We emphasize these things with each other. We exhort one another to evangelism. Whatever happened to evangelism? When did that die? We exhort one another to spiritual renewal. This has been the thing that before uh, evangelicalism got co-opted by politics, it was a movement for spiritual renewal. In that, there's no shame for us. Where our shame comes in is if we center ourselves on anything or anyone less than Jesus. We look drunk off our tails when we do that. The no shame of our sobriety means we live and move and have our being in, in the dark world as people of light. Which doesn't mean we know secrets about the future. It means we live in the present by two lights shining simultaneously. One on the past. The central event of the past for us is the crucifixion, is the life, death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's our central event in the past. Our light shines on that. And then our light shines in the future on the return. Jesus walking out of his tomb in the past. The central event of the future is Jesus walking out of heaven. And this is why we walk with God, our life with God, because we've put on, verse 8, the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's got to stoke in us some passion. But it's also deeply securing. Two minutes on this and we're done. It's meant to be deeply securing. The no surprise due to the security of our redemption. Look, he says in verse 2, you're, so, you're fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4, you're not in darkness that the day would surprise you like a thief. Verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, and that's the sleep of, of death, we might live with him. The no surprise due to the security of our redemption. I mean, let me just end the sermon by asking you some questions, okay? <clears throat> are you secure in your redemption? <laughs> Do you want to be? Yes, I want to be. I hope we'd all say that. If you're not, why not? Are you trying to earn it? Are you trying to prove to God that he made a really good decision, you know, when he brought you into the kingdom? I've been checking with uh, pastor friends in other places, catching up with some buddies in the north and the west and places they're serving. And, I'm, uh, and we're asking one another, have you ever known a time like now when the people of God seem so riled and so rattled by everything that's going on around us. Why? Why are we? I mean, that's a fair question. If we are people who present ourselves to the world as being in Christ, as being people who are surrounded by eternal verities, rock-solid truth, why are we so agitated today about current events. Where's the peace of Christ for you? Is it where you can get to it? Or is it buried under a pile of worries and concerns and cares? And you say, well, all that stuff's important. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's not of eternal consequence, most of it. Why do you let the world dictate to you why do we let's just leave it we why do we let the world dictate to us what we ought to be concerned about i'm tired of the church being led around by the nose by social media uh, in fact i'm standing against that now social media is not going to set the context for me anymore the scriptures set our context the scriptures set our our train and our trail the church has to be the one place on earth that says to the rest of the world it's about jesus when we come in here, when we're with one another, and when we go out there, it's about Jesus Christ. What disciples you? You know the reason why we're so rattled and riled, so many of us, is you're being discipled by voices from the right politically. You're being discipled by voices from the left politically. You wake up every morning thinking about, can't wait to tune into so-and-so, can't wait to get the new post from so-and-so's blog. That's what you're absorbed with. That's what you are drunk on. It's not commending your faith. It's not helping you. I'm pleading with you here. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. I get 30 minutes with you a week. Rush, Glenn, uh, Sean, the rest of them, they get hours with you. Okay? And if you're not listening to them and you hate them, you're listening to their counterparts on the left. 
Can you stop? Can you step back? Can you ask yourself the question, how in the world is what this man telling me promoting the way, truth, and life of Jesus Christ in my life? I would be less of a pastor if I didn't tell you that. I know there's some of you that want me to shill for your favorite party up here. You think that's what we're supposed to be doing here. That's not what we're supposed to be doing here. We are supposed to be making much of the gospel of Jesus Christ while there's time. Please read your Bible. Please pray. Please reach out to your neighbor in good faith and say, yeah, I'd like to just get to know you and see what the Lord does with that. I'm pleading with you because the thing that my pastor friends and I are, are, are wondering, and I'm watching some pastor friends ready to quit because they're tired of seeing the church be just as riddled by the divisions of the world as any other entity. We look just like another political party. That's, that can't be among us. We have to emphasize not where we're disagreeing and, and where we don't like what the other one says or what unsettles us. or ag- Stop all that, please. I'm pleading with you. Let's center on what secures us rather than what unsettles us and divides us and we differ on. And the thing that we're wondering about as pastors now is how do we get the church to encourage one another and build one another up in the centrality of Jesus and what we have in common in him. It's stuff from the darkness. I don't care how right you think it is. It's from the darkness if it divides the people of God. Please be keen to that. And we're told here, verse 4, we're not in darkness. We are not in darkness for that day to surprise us like a thief. Look, if you somehow know that you're going to get broken in on during the night, don't you stay up waiting for the intruder? I mean, if you know ahead of time. You're not surprised if you know he's coming. Jesus isn't come back to steal the world back. It's, it's, it was never ours. It's always been his. We're his image bearers and, and likeness bearers. It's always his. And what saves you is not your political stripe. I can't believe I have to tell a group of evangelicals this, but we've got to recover the gospel. That's our identification. That's our draw. That's what we export to the world. It's how to be justified before God in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to work for that. The world doesn't work right now. The atheists get it totally backwards. The world doesn't work right now, not because he's abandoned it, but because we've abandoned him. He'll make it right. He already has by way of his cross where every sin, every rebellion has already been judged and paid for. Will you receive the payment? Have you received the payment? Do you love Jesus? Do you? (laughs) I think you do. I think most everybody in the room does, at least those of you that I recognize and know. If so, if that's true of you, then you know what your surprise is? Your surprise is every year you get hit with, I can't believe I'm lavishly loved by a God who only had to judge me. I can't believe I've been shown the incredible infinite grace and mercy I've been shown by a God who could have crushed me under his holiness. That's your surprise. And that's what stokes joy and a sense of peace where we can access it 
and not be rattled and riled by so many things. And when that becomes characteristic, you begin to look out on every horizon and you're looking for something on that horizon. You're looking for perhaps today is the day. Perhaps today is the day. You live in the light of that hope because you can't think of anything better than Jesus Christ returning and taking us to himself. Now, I've gone over time. I still want us to sing because we're going to sing some great hymns. Three lines from three different hymns to talk about the return. So let's stand. Let's sing together. And then we're going to uh, have our benediction.